Good evening. Putin puts Russia's nuclear weapons on high alert. What does that mean for the world? Reports of peace talks between Ukraine and Russia as brutal fighting continues and thousands flee the country. And in New York, the end of the mask mandate in schools. With these and other stories, I'm Paul Durienzo with the WBAI News for Sunday, February 27th, 2022. Mayor Eric Adams announced today that New York City will lift its indoor mask mandate for public school students and key to New York City requirements if the five boroughs continue to see a low level of COVID-19. It's expected to happen on March 7th, but the announcement will be formally made. His announcement came hours after Governor Kathy Hochul said the state would lift its mask mandate for schools on Wednesday, March 2nd. Tuesday, pardon me, March 2nd. 70 percent of the population right now lives in an area that's considered low to medium risk. And that's very positive. And in low to medium, their recommendation is that there's no longer a requirement that masks be worn indoors, and that includes schools in low and medium risk areas. So given the, the, the decline in our rates, our hospitalization, strong vaccination rates, and the CDC guidance, uh, my friends, the day has come. Today we are going to be announcing that we'll be lifting the statewide mask requirement in schools, and that'll be effective this Wednesday, March 2nd. So why are we waiting till March 2nd? This came out at the end of the day Friday. We took the entire weekend to work with our Department of Health and our, our team here at the Chamber, as well as reaching out to the teachers, the PTAs, talking to school superintendents, and even our Commissioner of Education, Betty Rosas, who's been so embedded in this issue with us, and what an amazing partner she has been. So we wanted to make sure that we had uh, the, the advice and the, uh, the wisdom of all these different groups that are really directly affected by this decision. And in touch with them for a number of days, they let us know that, yes, students are coming back. But a lot of families are still on vacation until later tonight. Uh, a lot of people work in the school system are not back, so they wanted a little bit of time to assess guidance that we are working on will be out very shortly again in consultation with these school leaders this is how we do it here in the state of new york but we believe that by wednesday we'll be able to have a situation where we'll have the lifting of the mask requirement and uh children that includes children who are in child care centers ages two and up who are covered right now now this is an important point to make we will lift the statewide requirement based on all the data that i've just outlined However, there are some states, some counties uh, in the state of New York where they have a higher rate of transmission. We will allow them the flexibility to determine what's best for their county. We would encourage them to take a look at this and follow the CDC, but this will no longer be a mandate. Here's the areas we're still going to have mask requirements in effect for the time being. State-regulated health care settings, state-regulated adult care facilities and nursing homes, our correctional facilities, homeless shelters, domestic violence shelters, and as the, as the federal government requires that they continue to be in, instituted on trains and airports and airplanes, buses and train stations. This is the time to list, lift the mask requirement, and I want to thank all the parents and everybody who have been through this. And, and that's Governor Kathy Hochul. The city's key to New York City rules require restaurants, gyms, and entertainment venues to ask patrons and customers for proof of vaccination. Meanwhile, on the battlefront in Ukraine, 
Fighting was bitter and deadly as Russian and Ukrainian troops traded missile attacks and small arms fire could be heard in the streets of Kharkiv, the nation's second largest city. The fighting came as the European Union declared Russian flights were off limits from its airspace and the United States joined in blocking the most Russian banks' access to SWIFT, the financial backbone of monetary transactions throughout the world. The 27-nation European Union decided for the first time in its history to supply weapons to a country at war and a source says that it would send a half a billion dollars of weaponry to its eastern neighbor. Earlier today, President Vladimir Putin put Russia's nuclear deterrent on high alert as Ukraine claimed that it repelled Russian ground forces attacking its biggest cities. The United States said Putin was escalating the war with dangerous rhetoric. We'll have more on the nuclear threat later in the newscast. There was a glimmer of hope in the four-day-long conflict, the first major war on European soil since World War II. The Ukrainian president's office said negotiations with Moscow without preconditions would be held at the Belarusian-Ukrainian border, but it was not clear when they would start. The capital, Kyiv, remained in Ukrainian government hands with President Volodymyr Zelensky rallying his people daily despite Russian shelling. In Moscow, protests by Russians against the war continues, with police moving in to make arrests. And in 2000, have reportedly been seized, protesting the war throughout Russia. And that was some of the sound of protests where over 2,000 have been arrested as the United Nations Security Council met in New York, where Ukraine's ambassador clashed with his Russian counterpart. And I will ask all of you to dedicate a moment of complete silence to pray or to meditate if you do not believe in God for peace to pray for souls of those who has been already killed for souls of those who may be killed and I invite the Russian ambassador to pray for salvation. Please, ladies and gentlemen, let us spend a moment in a complete silence. Apologize, but before moving to a moment of silence, I want to include in the list those people who perished over all these years in Donbass. They also are worthy of being mentioned. Any, all human lives are valuable. Let's not forget them either. But let's, ladies and gentlemen, spend a moment in complete silence. Thank you. I thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen. And that's Ukraine's ambassador, Sergei Kislytsia.
speaking today at the United Nations in New York. Former international correspondent Chris Hedges has covered wars for 20 years. He says the world has suddenly changed. Although he blames NATO and the United States, he adds when Russia invaded Ukraine, it violated international law. We thought we were entering a new era of cooperation. Gorbachev wanted to create a regional security pact that would include Russia. But of course, the arms manufacturers saw this market worth billions of dollars by converting the uh, military hardware of countries that had been in the communist bloc to be NATO compatible. It was such a good business that they have now pushed it all the way up to the Ukraine with the predictable results. But to understand is not to condone. I don't condone in any way. This is an act of preemptive war on the part of Russia. Yes, they were baited, but they pulled the trigger and they're guilty. They say truth is the first casualty of war. Well, ambiguity is probably the second. The sad part, the tragic part is that this was certainly understood by diplomats and policymakers at the end of the Cold War. But the merchants of war, those who profit off of war, overrule with the predictable and very sad results. What's happening on the ground? No one knows. Information is a tool. Misinformation is a tool of war by both sides. I have a sense from a distance that there may be overreach on the part of Russia fueling the conflict, uh, which, of course, NATO is doing by providing arms is dangerous. My most fervent hope is that there is some kind of a ceasefire and a diplomatic solution. But if weapons keep pouring into the Ukraine, that's highly unlikely. Now, there's supposed to be peace talks occurring at the border between Ukraine and Belarus as we speak or soon. Should we put any credits in that? I don't know. You know, I'm not there. And I learned as a reporter that if you're not on the ground, it's really difficult from a distance to grasp what intentions are. Is it window dressing? Is Russia serious? Are the Ukrainians Will they agree, which is the primary Russian demand, to accept neutrality, i.e. they will not ask for NATO membership? That's really the core demand, I think. I don't know any of that because I'm not there. We've seen response in Russia. Were you surprised by the protests in Russia? I can't imagine this is a terribly popular war for the public. There are longstanding cultural, linguistic, historical ties with the Ukraine. If the reports that we're hearing are true, that the numbers of Russian casualties are not insignificant, I can't imagine that has widespread popular support. But again, I'm not in Russia. But that from a distance is what it appears to be. The Ides of March, you know, we're coming into March that somehow the the Russian military might have a uh, cesarean response to all of this. What do you think of those claims and the fact that they're saying things like this on American uh, television? I don't know that they know what they're talking about. That kind of stuff really requires a very deep understanding of what's happening within the Russian military. And I certainly doubt anyone in the press has that understanding. Donald Trump, he seems to think that President Putin's a very smart man who's doing all the right things and that it's the U.S. and President Biden who are stupid. He said those words. You know, responding to Donald Trump is kind of like responding to the tirade of a fifth grader. Putin's not stupid, of course. I think this may have been a terrible miscalculation. And then I want to stress again that under international law, preemptive war is a war crime. We may have gone into Iraq based on lies and fabrications, and the Russians were clearly provoked by the expansion of NATO and stationing of 
NATO troops in Eastern Europe, despite promises by the Clinton administration that would not happen, and the meddling in the Ukrainian political system to orchestrate a coup, all of that is true. But in the end, they pull the trigger and they're guilty. Should we be demanding Putin win, or should we be demanding immediate peace and withdrawal? Immediate peace and withdrawal, we should have never expanded NATO beyond Germany. And they have very legitimate security concerns. There's a, there's a missile base in Poland, a NATO missile base that's 100 miles from the Russian border. This is insane. In the end, hold the arms manufacturers who push this extension of NATO, along with those who orchestrated the extension of NATO guilty, on the one hand. On the other hand, you can't, under international law, justify what Putin did. So it's just tragic all the way around. And the people who are paying the price, as usual in war, the vulnerable and the children and the families and the mothers, as I saw in 20 years as a war correspondent. It's a war that should have never been fought. I think if those promises have been kept, Russia would not have invaded the Ukraine. They weren't kept with the predictable results. And here we are, you know, flirting uh, with a nuclear holocaust. What do you think of that, the threat of uh, uh, him uh, raising the alert status of well, nuclear It was weapons. chilling. It was just chilling. He feels completely surrounded. The, 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 it's clear now that the tactic is to destroy his country and destroy him. He's totally painted into a corner. He's in, angry and enraged and feels betrayed. Oh, legitimately, he was betrayed. And this the whole thing is dangerous. Like so much of Ward's not black and white, it's kind of gray. We bear tremendous responsibility for this situation. Is there anybody we can trust out there, any news? Only trust what they see. They don't see much. <laughs> Secondhand reports in war are pretty worthless. And that is, of course, um, Chris Hedges, who's covered wars for over 20 years. And you're listening to the news on WBAI New York. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Impeached over allegations he withheld aid from Ukraine as leverage to prompt an investigation of his political opponent. Former President Donald Trump portrayed himself as a strong supporter of the country Saturday as the keynote speaker at the Conservative Political Action Committee meeting in Orlando. Nevertheless, he continued calling Russia's President Vladimir Putin smart as he invades Ukraine. We are praying for the proud people of Ukraine. God bless them all. God bless them all. Yesterday, reporters asked me if I thought President Putin was smart. I said, of course he's smart, to which I was greeted with, oh, that's such a terrible thing to say. I'd like to tell the truth. Yes, he's smart. The NATO nations, and indeed the world, as he looks over what's happening strategically with no repercussions or threats whatsoever, they're not so smart. They're looking the opposite of smart. If you take over Ukraine, we're going to sanction you, they say. Sanction? Well, that's a pretty weak statement. You mean they're not going to blow us to pieces, at least psychologically? And that is part of the speech, uh, the rambling speech that went on for quite a while at the Conservative Political Action Conference in Orlando by the former president. Ukraine played a big role in Trump's presidency, resulting in his first impeachment. 
which ended in acquittal by the U.S. Senate. The controversy revolved around Trump's 2019 phone call with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky, who has since been widely praised for his action in defending his country against Russia. Zelensky talked about buying more military equipment from the United States, and Trump replied, I would like you to do us a favor, though, because our country has been through a lot, and Ukraine knows a lot about it. Trump was accused of trying to get Zelensky to launch an investigation that could hurt President Biden's candidacy. And in war reports that cannot be confirmed, just that, unconfirmed reports. That said, a Ukrainian state news agency said that Russian troops had blown up a natural gas pipeline in Kharkiv, Ukraine's largest city, second largest city, sending a burning cloud into the sky. Soon after, Russian armor rolled into Kharkiv in northwestern Ukraine, and witnesses reported firing and explosions, but city authorities said the attack had been repelled. Ukrainian forces also appear to be holding off Russian troops advancing on Kyiv. That's the capital. However, satellite imagery released by the private Maxar Technologies taken on Sunday showed a three and a half mile long convoy of Russian ground forces, including tanks, approximately 40 miles away heading towards Kyiv. Ukraine's health ministry said at least 352 civilians, including 14 children, have been killed and 1,684 people have been wounded. A United Nations relief agency says more than 360 68,000 refugees had crossed into neighboring countries, clogging railways, roads, and borders. A United Nations agency reported 64 civilian deaths, and a Ukrainian presidential advisor said 4,500 Russian soldiers had been killed. These reports are all confirmed and subject to the fog of war. As reported earlier, Vladimir, President Vladimir Putin dramatically escalated east-west tensions by ordering Russian nuclear forces into high alert. Citing aggressive statements by NATO, Putin issued a directive to increase the readiness of Russia's nuclear weapons, a step that raised fears that the invasion of Ukraine could boil over into a nuclear war, whether by design or mistake. Physicist Robert Rosner of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists spoke with WBAI earlier today. He says the threat is potentially real, especially of an accident or mistake? It's unclear whether it, um, uh, whether operationally uh, it, may, uh, it means very much because both the United States and uh, Russia have uh, nuclear forces uh, that are basically always on alert. So that's been true, uh, you know, basically since the start of the nuclear age. Uh, certainly in the case of the United States and, and then when Ru- Russia joined, so that we have, so for example, our Minuteman force and our submarines are always on alert. So ex- exactly what uh, what high alert means uh, is a bit unclear, uh, except uh, that he's saying is sending a signal that uh, he has, that he would be willing to engage with, uh, with uh, nuclear weapons. So I think that that's really operationally what it really means. So he's basically saying, saying that watch out, I'm willing to do this. That's do you think this situation in Ukraine has uh, is like the, the uh, Cuban Missile Crisis? From the Putin perspective, the answer is yes, except in reverse, in the sense that he sees uh, the NATO forces that are now on his border uh, as a similar threat to the way the United States viewed uh, having, uh, you know, Russian missiles uh, in Cuba. Yeah, mm-hmm. so that's that's how he views it. Of course, of course, we're not aiming uh, missiles at him. They were aiming missiles at us. But I think the argue his the, their argument is that 
the anti-missile systems that that uh, the United States, for example, has brought into uh, Eastern Europe, which are designed to intercept um, uh, potential missile launches from, uh, from Iran, their point of view, the Russian point of view, is that, well, that they, these things could easily be turned and then be used against us. What's left as far as nuclear weapons treaties and or peace talks between Russia and the United States? Is this, is this Ukraine conflict catapulting us into a Cold War era? There is one treaty that's, that's basically back and forth, which is a new start. It limits the number of nuclear devices that are, that are basically in position to be launched on both sides. This is just a treaty between the United States and Russia doesn't involve China. That treaty came back in force with Biden. There's been a lot of talk about Russia has more warheads than we have. They were counting. They have a few hundred more. Is, is that really important? No, no, yeah. no, no. That's not an issue. There have been studies. So how many do we really need in order to defeat Russia should there be an exchange? And the answer is somewhere in the vicinity of about 500. And we have three times as many that are in launch position and in reserve, so not mounted on launch vehicles, but they're still, these weapons still exist, many thousands more. So we have more than enough. What's the lesson the world should be uh, taking from this circumstance? It's shocking, and we were kind of lulled to sleep by the dissolution of the Soviet Union, because what we've gotten back is a resurgent Russia that wants to reassert itself in Europe. It's quite a shock, playing chicken. What's the way out of this, in your opinion? Remain steadfast and don't do anything crazy. He's basically daring us to do something. And if we fall for it, then things can escalate. And what we've always argued, you know, when I was chair of the uh, Science and Security Board of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists, was that the most dangerous thing is miscalculation in the accident. But no one in their right mind would ever really want to launch uh, nuclear weapons, not anymore. But they can be launched, and they can be launched through miscalculation, misjudging the other side, and through simple accidents. That's right. the danger. Physicist Robert Rosner of the Bulletin of the Atomic Scientists. United States defense officials would not disclose their current nuclear alert level except to say that the military is prepared all times to defend its homeland and allies. White House Press Secretary Jen Psaki says that Putin is resorting to the pattern he used in the weeks before the invasion, quote, which is to manufacture threats that don't exist in order to justify further aggression. And finally, Fencing installed around the United States Capitol for months after the January 2021 insurrection will be put back up before President Joe Biden's State of the Union address on Tuesday as concern grows about potential demonstrations or truck convoys snarling traffic in the nation's capital. Former President Trump referred to the truckers' protests, which have started in Canada and had spread to the United States in his speech at CPAC last night. He had this to say. Radical Democrats truly want to fight for democracy aboard. They should start with the democracy that is under threat right next door, a place called Canada. <laughs> the tyranny we have witnessed in Canada in recent weeks should shock and dismay people all over the world. 
In an advanced Western democracy, the peaceful movement of patriotic truckers, workers, and families protesting for their most basic rights and liberties has been violently put down. President Trump, truckers protesting uh, in Canada, in Canada's capital of Ottawa, blocked and snarled streets and also blocked the international border between Canada and Detroit before arrests uh, put an end to that blockade. A similar blockade, a similar uh, convoy called the Freedom Convoy started in the western United States but is being joined by trucks coming in from different parts of the country, converging on Washington in time for Tuesday's State of the Union address. And uh, some coming afterwards, raising the possibility that there could be uh, confrontations. The Pentagon has already approved the deployment of 700 unarmed National Guard troops to be used to assist with traffic control during potential demonstrations. And that's some of the news for Sunday, February 27th, 2022. The news produced with Max Schmid. Uh, pardon me, the news producer Linda Perry, our engineer is Max Schmid from New York City. I'm Paul DiRienzo. Thanks for listening.